You can turn over to Matthew chapter 6 this morning, Matthew chapter 6. We're working our way, kind of weaving our way through the Gospel of Matthew. And we've come to a section that's commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. We call it the Disciples' Prayer because that's what it is. And uh, I just want to read it for us this morning so we can kind of get a hold of what we want to talk about uh, concerning the Disciples' Prayer. In verse 9, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Last week, we looked at uh, kind of an overall purpose of prayer. Why does God want us to pray? Why does God give us the gift of prayer? And uh, we kind of boiled it down that there are two spiritual activities in the life of a believer that should be gone, going on all the time, continuously. And uh, we talked about those two being, first of all, the study of the Word of God, and secondly, prayer. Those two elements, those two basic things are very foundational to a believer's life. They should be something that's unceasingly going on in a believer's life. Um, In Acts chapter 6, verse 4, they said in the new church, it says this, "We We will give ourselves continually, that means ongoing, to first of all prayer, and then also the ministry of the Word. And if there's two things you have to have in a a church that's going to stand on the principles of God's Word, it's first of all prayer and then also the study of God's Word. Not necessarily in that order, but those are two basic things. And we talked a little bit about last week how it's so essential that we study the Word of God so that we know how to pray intelligently. Sometimes we pray for things that God has already given us. And I encourage you to get the message from last week if you missed that, talking about prayer. But man, throughout the Psalms, is told over and over again to meditate on the law of God day and night. It was supposed to be a matter of his thoughts all the time, 24-7. Well, the same thing deals with prayer. In, In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says that we're to pray without ceasing. I remember when I first became a Christian, I thought, how in the world am I going to pray without ceasing? And I remember trying to do an all-prayer, all-night prayer meeting, you know, and uh, just falling asleep and feeling like the disciples going, oh man, I blew it again, you know. Can't even tarry with the Lord one hour and I fall asleep. And I misunderstood what it meant to pray without ceasing. And the Apostle Paul also says, pray always with all prayer and supplication. So throughout the New Testament, we're told that we're to do everything by prayer and with thanksgiving, make our requests be made known unto God. And so we're to be praying at all times. And to make sure that we pray the right way, we're to study the Word of God, take it in, meditate on it, kind of apply it to our lives each day. And when we do those things, hopefully our prayers will be prayers that are effective. 
George Mueller said this. He was a man of great prayer. He said, I live in the spirit of prayer. I pray as I walk when I lie down. And when I arise, the answers are always coming. See, prayer was a way of life. Prayer isn't something that we do as Christians. It should be an attitude that we have. A constant dependence upon God. Our Lord knows how important prayer was. He knew it was to be a way of life. He spent much time in communion, in prayer with His Heavenly Father. And He stops right here in the middle of the the, uh, discourse here on the Sermon of the Mount to give a lot of attention to prayer. He talks about giving and He also talks about fasting. And sandwiched right between those two is the topic of prayer. And He gives more volume in words to that subject than the other two. And there's a reason for that. You can give all you want, but if you're not doing it prayerfully, it doesn't mean anything to the Lord. You can fast all you want, but unless you're doing it, you know, in the Spirit of the Lord, it's not going to do anything for you. And so prayer is kind of a central element to our lives. It should be. And here he's dealing with Pharisees and Sadducees that would go out on the street corner and dress up in fancy clothes and go, oh, look at me. And they'd pray these eloquent prayers and everybody go, oh, Look at how religious that person is. And God says, you know what? It doesn't matter what you wear. It doesn't matter what you look like. What matters is what's on the inside. What's the attitude of your heart? And it's kind of interesting that the disciples even knew how important it was to pray. And and in the Gospel of Luke, it says that they came to Jesus and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. I don't know about you, but I need the Lord to teach me to pray. <laughs> Prayer comes hard. It's, it's tough. It's difficult at times because you want to be so independent. You want to be so self-sufficient. How many times, guys, have you got the thing home from the store in the little box and you rip the part and the, 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 the parts are all over the living room floor and you rip the part the directions and you're frustrated? And then you realize, you know what? I didn't even pray about this. Try to put this thing together and now it's a big mess. So you pause and you pray and you go back to your task and it just seems to kind of flow seamlessly together. See, God wants us to do that first of all in life. He doesn't want us to make it something that we kind of attach on the end. Are we truly thankful to the Lord when we go out to a restaurant and we said, well, who's going to bless? Oh, I'll bless the food. Are we really thankful? Is this just a thing we do as Christians? Sometimes I wonder... How about if we pray after the meal? Then we'll know how to pray. Was it a good meal? We should pray that the Lord would protect us from catching food poisoning or something. You know, it does, it does those kind of technical things, but you know, those things don't really matter. It's the attitude of the heart. And there's a, a little particulars that God does not teach about prayer. He, he doesn't teach us about the posture of prayer. He doesn't tell us, oh, you have to be bowed down in order to pray. If you're bowed down, I'll hear you. But if you're standing up, I'm not going to hear you. Do you know that in the Bible, people prayed standing, lifting up their hands, sitting, kneeling, lifting up their eyes, bowing down, placing their head between their knees, pounding on their breasts, facing a temple, facing away from the temple, all sorts of things, on and on and on. doesn't matter what posture you're in. Don't get hung up on that. I have a sister that came to know the Lord while she was sitting on the toilet. 
She prayed and she, you know, I said, well, tell me about your testimony. You know, she told me, I said, well, you can probably leave that part out. But here I am sharing it with you Sunday morning. I'm sure she will edit that out of the tape. But there's no specific posture for prayer. Now, is there anything wrong with kneeling? Not at all. Matter of fact, the pastor of uh, uh, Baptist Church in, in uh, Dallas, Texas, I think it was, A.W. Criswell, he said the one thing the Catholic Church got right was the kneeling, little kneelers that they have in the Catholic Church. And he had kneelers installed in his Baptist church because he knew his people didn't know how to pray. They lost the heart for prayer. You can pray kneeling, you can pray standing, you can pray driving down the freeway. Done that many times. There's no specific posture. He also doesn't tell us about any place to pray. See, some people you know, say, well, why don't you have your church open during the week? So we can come by and pray. Well, first of all, if we left the church open, people would rip off all of our stuff, which probably wouldn't be a good steward of what we have. But besides that point, say it was just an empty building, we had nothing in here of value, could we leave the doors open? Sure. But what's the purpose? This isn't a holy place. This is a building with wood and and, and plaster, and it's put together, and it's a place where Christians gather on the first day of the week to worship the Lord. That's all it is. It could be a cow field doesn't matter. There's no place to pray that's more holy than others. And that's why Jesus doesn't talk about that. In the Bible, they prayed while they were in battle. They prayed in a cave. They prayed in a closet. They prayed in the garden. They prayed on a mountainside, by a river, by the sea. They prayed in God's house, the temple. First Timothy says, let men pray what? Everywhere. Same thing as Paul when he wrote, pray unceasingly. That'd be hard to do if you weren't praying everywhere. The Bible says that men prayed everywhere. They prayed in bed. You can pray in a home. You can pray while you're fishing. You can pray on a housetop. You can pray while you're in prison. You can pray. It doesn't matter where. God will hear your prayer if you're one of his children. There's no specific place to pray. He also doesn't talk about times. (laughs) Some people say, well, you know, isn't it more spiritual to pray in the morning? No, it's not. It's probably a wise thing to do. Start your day off fresh. You wake up. First thing you do is open your mouth and praise the Lord and say a prayer. God, get me through this day, whatever it is. That's a wise thing to do. But that's not any more spiritual than before you go to bed saying, boy, God, thank you for this day and you know, bless tomorrow. It doesn't tell us certain times to pray. That would be a contradiction of praying all the time. <laughs> you think about it. They prayed in the morning. They prayed three times a day. They prayed in the evening. They prayed before meals. They prayed after meals. They prayed at the ninth hour, at bedtime, at midnight, day and night, today. Often, you know... You, you see this happening that we have this prescribed time when we pray. That's not what prayer is about. We need to be praying when we're old, when we're young, when we're in trouble, when we're being blessed. Always, it says. There's no specific time for prayer. He doesn't give a specific time. He doesn't give a specific place. He doesn't even give a specific posture for prayer. 
In some cultures, they feel when they pray, they have to put a prayer shawl on. There's even churches in the uh, United States that feel that, you know, when you go to church, women should wear a hat and all this kind of thing. That's fine if they want to do that. There's nothing wrong with that. But don't tell me you're more spiritual because you got something over your head and I literally have nothing. Okay? That's ridiculous. See, and back in Jesus' time, these people would actually, just like they do today, if you go over to Jerusalem and you go to the, the, uh, the, the wailing wall there where they pray, they don't just come in blue jeans and, you know, hey, what's... I mean, they come decked out in all their stuff and they got their little prayer things and they got the things wrapped around their wrists. and their, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. But that's what their culture teaches them. But the Bible says that basically people prayed in all kinds of circumstances with all kinds of attitudes and sometimes they wore sackcloth, sometimes they were sitting in ashes, sometimes they were shaving their head... They were beating their breasts. They were crying out. They were applying dust to their head, it says. They were tearing their garments with a sign of mourning, fasting, sighing, groaning, crying aloud, all sorts of things. They were agonizing. They even have Jesus praying in the garden as he was sweating blood because his prayers were so intense. He was under so much stress. See, those aren't the issues when we talk about prayer. A lot of times we want to make them the issues. We say, well, how's your prayer life going? Well, you know, I missed a couple this last week. You know, I, I do it in the morning, you know, and over my coffee, and I, that's what time I have my prayer. And see, and Jesus is saying it shouldn't be relegated just to this little segment of our life. It's more of an attitude of the heart. Prayer is a total way of life. And beloved, don't think I'm up here telling you that because I, I know this from experience. Like I said, I struggle in the area of prayer because you want to be self-sufficient. You want to just do these things. You know, you don't, you think of God as, hey, you don't want to bother you right now. You know, I can, can't handle this myself. And he's gone, bother me! Please bother me! Come to me with your needs, your requests, your praises, whatever it is. I want more. And so it should be a way of life. And so when we come to this prayer, the disciples' prayer, it's so important to understand that this is not something that we just repeat. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We don't do that. That's not what Jesus said. He didn't say in verse 9, repeat this prayer. It doesn't say that. It says, in this manner, therefore pray. In other words, okay, you know what? I'm giving you an example. I'm giving you a model for your prayer life. I'm giving you a model when you come to God in prayer. Here's a model that you can use. He's not saying repeat these words. That would go against the, 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 the previous thing that he talked about, praying with vain repetitions. And unfortunately, this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer, whatever you want to call it, has been kind of diminished to something that we just recite. There's nothing wrong with reciting it. They're the words of the Lord. It's just like reciting any other verse. But don't just memorize it to memorize it, to say it, to think that somehow these, this, this, this prayer is some, some form of, of prayer that Jesus gave you to repeat often. That's not what He did. He gave it to you as a model. 
In the, the example of over in Luke, when they said, teach us to prayer, he repeats basically the Lord's Prayer once again, but he says some things a little different. So he didn't mean us to repeat these words exactly. And so when he says, after this manner, pray, he says, you know, this is a model for you. Don't just go off repeating these words. Don't just memorize it. That's not what we're called to do when it comes to a prayer. Is there anything wrong with memorizing Scripture? Not at all. Is this Scripture? Yeah. Can you memorize it? Sure. But make sure that you stop and you understand what you're saying. And last week we looked at the purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer is not trying to get God to agree with our plans. So many times we come up with something. I'm thinking about a career change. Oh, really? Well, I've got to pray about it. And see, what we mean by that is we're going to go to God and we're going to say, this is what I want, and I want you to kind of make it happen. (laughs) And so many times, we're so focused on what we want, we couldn't hear if God was standing right beside us shouting in our ear, I don't want you to do that. (laughs) We'd we'd continue down that path because we've, we've isolated Him from our lives in so many ways, and in one way is prayer. See, prayer is not trying to get God to do what you want or to agree with you. Prayer is, is us coming to God, affirming the sovereignty that He has, and affirming His majesty, and affirming that He's God, and that we're not. And then we take our will... And we say, God, you know what? I don't know if you want this or not, but make it submissive to your will. Talked to my brother Tom yesterday. He's dealing with some cancer and he's got it in his lungs and spread to his back. And so they're dealing with this radiation and everything. And similar to my brother Bob, I guess. I don't know. But I told him on the phone. I said, well, you know, I'll be, uh, you know, praying for you. And he said, well, I appreciate that. And uh, at one point... He kind of asked me, well, what are you going to pray? <laughs> and he laughed. And I said, you know, I said, I don't know. I said, I can't sit here and say I'm going to pray for God's healing because I don't know if it's God's will for you to heal. All I can tell you is God's sovereign. We're all going to die on time. And, and brother, if it's your time to go, the important thing is it's not knowing the time. It's, it's being ready for that time. He said, good. I like that, that kind of prayer. I said, I just pray that God will give you the grace to get through these treatments you're going through and things like that. Because I don't know what else to pray. I mean, if it's God's will that he heals you, that'd be, that'd be an incredible thing. But that's not the first thing necessarily that I'm praying for. I'm praying that his will will be done in your life. See, and sometimes we, we, we don't understand that. In John chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, the Lord says this, When we ask anything in His name, He hears us. Remember, we talked about this last week. It doesn't mean just attaching Jesus' name to the end of a prayer. Lord, I want a new Cadillac in Jesus' name. I want my bank account filled up in Jesus' name. You hear this all the time. That's not what it means. It means in submission with His will, with His desire in mind. In Jesus' name, at the end of a prayer, isn't doesn't make the prayer magical. It's okay to pray a prayer and not say, in Jesus' name at the end. Because it's not just the words, it's the attitude of the heart. And in verse 14, he goes on and he says, in order that the Father may be glorified. See, that's the purpose of our prayers. It's not to get things from God. 
That's what we think so many times. We think that the purpose of prayer is just to get things from God. God, I'm having a hard time at work. You know, I want you to make things better. Family's a little disruptive and make things better. And, and we constantly go to God like He's some divine Santa Claus saying, give me this, give me that. And, and, and God's saying, you know what? I'll give you what will glorify me. Because in the end, it's the glorification of God that's what's important. It's not what we get. See, pr- prayer, God gave us prayer for the, extru- the, the, the basic purpose of putting His majesty on display. Stop and think about this. When you're praying for somebody who's sick, and maybe their life is extended a year, I don't think you walk around saying, yeah, awesome prayer, man. I extended that guy's life one year. You don't say that. That that would be outrageous to say something like that. What do you do? You say, man, praise God. God has extended. God is lifted up. God is exalted. Financial you know, problems in your life, whatever it is, you're praying, God, give me whatever. And God does, and he gets you. Who gets the praise? It's God. It's got to be God. See, a lot of times we want to steal the glory and the praise that's due God in our lives. And we want to apply it to ourselves. Because that makes us feel get better. It makes us build up our ego. It helps us kind of have a, a better sense of self-esteem and all this stuff. And God's saying, no, that's not what it's about. It's about my glory. And in the Old Testament, you see time and time and time again where they understood this principle. You see Jonah in the belly of a whale, or a great fish, it says. Incredible circumstance. You know, if I was in the belly of a great fish, and I had the opportunity to pray, I mean, what would be the first thing that came out of your mouth? Be honest. Get me out of here! It stinks! You know, my skin's turning white from the acid. You know, it smells like fish, duh! You know, I want out of here. That's the first thing that I would pray. You look at Jonah and his prayer. And in Jonah chapter 2, he begins a prayer and you would think that, that he would just cry out to God. But he begins with this marvelous prayer of worship and praise. And he praises God for his sovereignty and, and all this stuff. And you're thinking, man, Jonah, you know, it's getting a little stinky in there. Don't you just, just ask him to get out. But he exalts the name of the Lord. The same thing in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel's in this sticky situation. You know, he's been praying and because he lives in a a pagan Babylonian society, he was having some problems. They didn't want him to do that. And it could have been kind of a life or death situation. And rather than just saying, God, get me out of here, he affirms the majesty and the glory and the holiness of the almighty character of the sovereign God. Jeremiah 32 spent most of his life in frustration, confusion, perplexity. Spent most of the time weeping because he tried to reach out to people and they just weren't responding. And he begins to pour out his heart in prayer to God in the midst of this hard time. And all he does is he talks about the majesty and he goes on attribute after attribute after attribute of God. Why do they do that? 
That's what this prayer does. The Lord's Prayer does the exact same thing. It says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. And then it ends, For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the what? The glory forever. Because the reason that is, is because God should be the focus of any prayer. It's not about what we get or what we want or what we need. It's it's focusing our attention on God. And prayer is to give God the, the, the privilege of responding to our prayers and putting His majesty, His power on display. We read Psalm 86 this morning. And the psalmist is about to offer a prayer and he's going to to pray to God and he's seeking God's mercy and God's love and God's compassion and His his tenderness. In verse 6 he says, Give ear, O Lord, unto my prayer and attend to the voice of my supplication. In the day of trouble I will call upon you for you will answer me. In the midst of trouble, this is a prayer of David, his heart's burdened. And he goes on there and he he talks about the majesty of God, about the character of God. For you are great. You do wondrous things. See, so many times we shouldn't just march into God's throne room and say, hey, here's what I want, pal. In Jesus' name, by the way. And walk away. That's not what we're called to do. In that psalm, he doesn't even really mention... (laughs) The request till the, till the very end there. It's amazing. He just doesn't bring it up. He wants to acknowledge that, you know what, I'm addressing God, the almighty, all-powerful God. Secondly, I want to acknowledge that I'm in submission to your will. And that's what prayer is. Prayer is basically bowing and bending our will in submission to the will of God. And once we understand that, It makes prayer a whole different realm in our lives. We want to set God in His rightful place in our hearts and sovereign and bring our own lives in submissively, in submission to His will. You look at Matthew 6 here, this prayer. Somebody came up with this outline and just incredible outline. I just want to go with this. Our Father who art in heaven talks about God's fatherhood, His paternity. Hallowed be thy name, it's God's priority. Thy kingdom come, God's program. Thy will be done, God's purpose. Give us our daily bread, His provision. Forgive us our debts, God's pardon. Lead us not into temptation, His protection. He talks about His preeminence there in the last sense. I mean, incredible time. Well, today we want to look at the fatherhood of God. God's paternity. Our Father who art in heaven. That's how this prayer begins. A lot of times, we throw the word Father around like it means nothing. As a matter of fact, and a lot of times when we're praying, I've even heard people use it as a non-word. You know what a non-word is, right? When you're, when you're talking um, uh, and you stop, and, uh, uh, you know, you, that's a non-word. It's not a, non, it's not a word. Well, sometimes when we pray and there's kind of this void of silence, I've heard people fill in, you know, Lord or Father just because they don't want the silence. It's kind of interesting. And sometimes we have to stop and say, what are we really saying? What are we really praying for? Well, in this first sentence, it says, Our Father in heaven. I mean, 
I don't know if that grabs you, but that's an incredible thought. That God, the one who created us all, is our Father. Amazing. He says, our Father. Why? Why does he say, why didn't he just say Father in heaven? Why does he have to say our Father? Who's he talking about? See, the negative here, well, the positive, first of all, is he's referring to believing people. People who believe in Christ. People who believe in God. People who committed their lives to God. It's, it's an exclusory kind of a comment there. He doesn't just say, oh, God's the Father of everybody. He said, no, He's our Father. And there's theology that goes around that talks about the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man and, oh, God is everybody's Father and all this stuff. It's very liberal theology. And we're all going to be saved universally and it's kind of crazy. Malachi 2.10 says, Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? So in that sense... And in that sense only, that we're created by one God, He is our Father. But here, when He's talking about our Father, He's talking about a relationship more than just being Creator-created. He's talking about an intimate relationship. And not everybody has that. 1 John chapter 3, He clearly lays out for us the characteristics of two families. You know, there's two families in the world today. There's the children of God and there's the children of the devil. That's it. Those two. You can't, you know, you can't kind of meet halfway in between, have one foot in, one foot out. You know, do the hokey pokey kind of deal. That's not going to work with God. All right. Either you are fully committed to Him or you're committed to the devil. You may not even know you're committed to the devil. But if you're not living for God, if you're not living for Christ, if you haven't come to the cross and trusted Him and cried out to Him and said, you know, God, my life hasn't been so great so far. I, I just want to make sure that, you know, I'm coming to you and I'm recognizing that, that I'm tired of trying to live life the way I've been doing it. Because it's a dead-end street. I get frustrated and then, you know, I just end up with problem after problem after problem. God, I'm going to give you a try. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Come to the cross of Christ. He'll change your life. He'll make you one of His children. The children of God do not continue to commit sin, the Bible says. doesn't mean they're perfect. We all sin in a myriad of ways every day. But the Bible says to continue purposefully, to go out with intent. That's what the children of the devil do, not the children of God. And so... It makes a distinction between the children of the God of God and children of the devil. The Apostle Paul makes that same distinction clear, calling the children of light and the children of darkness. So there's not just one family under the fatherhood of God. That's not how it works. You have to have a relationship with the Father. How do we have a relationship with the Father? Well, that's through the Son. Jesus makes that abundantly clear. When he says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the what? Father, but through me. 
He's the door. He's the only door. There's no back door. There's no side door. There's no hidden door. He's it. Only those who have put their faith, their trust in Christ, have been born again by His Spirit, are part of the family of God and can call out to God and say, Father. So when He says here, when Jesus says, Our Father, He eliminates the world of unbelieving people from that relationship. And because He is our Father, we have that intimate relationship with Him that's just incredibly wonderful. I don't know what your relationship with your Father is. It may be good, it may be horrible. I don't know. But you know what? God does. And God's saying, you know what? You may not have had a good childhood. You may not have, have, have dealt with a lot in your life. Or you've just dealt with a tremendous amount. And what God is saying this morning is, I want to be your father. I want to reach out to you. And I want to be a father to the fatherless, he says. In the Old Testament, they understood the fatherhood of God. They understood what that meant. But when it came to Jesus' time and Jesus' culture, the Jews somehow lost it. They just they they lost that intimacy. And so when they went out to pray, they would just, you know, say generic prayers. A little prayer book, and they just repeat these prayers for everything under the sun. And Jesus was calling them back to that intimacy. And I think today Jesus is calling us back to an intimacy in our relationship with Him through prayer. I don't think really until Jesus came to earth that Israel could really understand the intimacy that God wanted to have with them. Remember what Philip said to Jesus, show us the Father. Remember that? And his response was, have you been so long with me, Philip, and you don't know if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? See, that brought intimacy to a God that was kind of pushed away from them. They had a, a wide gulf between themselves and their God. But they understood it in the Old Testament. Time and time again we see that. They understood what it meant to have a relationship with a father. They understood it in the purpose of, in the idea that it was, they were begat by the father, that he created them. So they had that relationship with him. That he was their father. He was the father of the nation of Israel, it says. First Chronicles, it says, He is the God of Israel, our father. Secondly, they had a concept that they understood that the father of the Jews, they saw the nearness of God through the fatherhood. See, when you, you attach a name to our relationship with God, it's a father-son relationship that also kind of brings up some nearness to it. Because a father is not like an uncle or a cousin or a neighbor. A father is a direct relationship. And so they, they knew when he talked about father, whoa, that's, that's, that's talking about something pretty close. Psalm 68, it says, He is the father to the fatherless. 
It's important to have a father. Or a father figure. I lost my dad when I was seven. Lost my mom when I was three, but I had father figures. I had mother figures in my life, so it didn't affect me that adversely, I don't think. I know my wife says maybe it did, but, you know. You know, but it, it's, it's, it's something that I think when you, you don't have it, you don't really miss it, but when you have it and then all of a sudden it's gone, I, I couldn't imagine that. So they understood the nearness. They also understood the concept of God because of His grace as a father. Psalm 103, in there it says, As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities them that fear Him. See, He's like a merciful father. He's gracious. He's gentle. And that's how they saw God. They also really thank God for His guidance as a father. You know, there's one thing that a father can do that maybe nobody else can do. And, and from very young childhood, our neighbors just had a baby about a week ago. We were over there yesterday visiting with them. And uh, a little guy's name's Cooper. And, uh, um, you know, and his dad was holding him. And it's just so neat to see that bonding starting to take place even there. And at one point, the dad was kind of playing with his little hand there and he grabbed a hold of his dad's hand. He wouldn't let it go. Just wouldn't let it go. And there's that bonding going on. And eventually, you know, I said, boy, there's going to be a lot of times that you're going to, you know, eventually he's going to be asked for the keys to the car and all sorts of things. You know, don't think it's going to happen. He's going to be like this the rest of your life. And it's, you know, it's, it's those times that you provide guidance. Psalm or Jeremiah 31.9 says this, They will come with weeping, they will come with supplications, and I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. Why? Because I am a father of Israel. See, God understands His role and guidance. That's why He wants us to come to Him in prayer. you got problems in your life, you got issues, go to God in prayer and say, God, help me. I need your guidance. New Testament says that, you know what, we don't get answers to our prayers sometimes because we're, we're not asking the right, the right questions. We're not asking for the right things. It says we're asking amiss. But God says, I want to guide you. I want to help you in your life. That's the kind of father we have in God. You know, a lot of people reject God because they had a rotten childhood. They had a rotten father. They had a father that didn't do all these things we're talking about this morning. I'm here to tell you that God can heal those hurts. I guarantee it if you just give Him a chance. If you cry out to Him and say, God, you know what? I don't understand all that's going on here, but I, I understand one thing. I have a big need in my life, and I think you're maybe the guy that can help me meet it. You're the God that come, can come into my life and, and meet the needs that I have because they're so great. He'll heal the scars. He'll heal the hurts. The other thing a father-son relationship brings is the requirement to obey. The requirement to obey. You know, the one thing that a father and son have are, you know, usually the father will say, son, I want you to do this. Well, if the son is going to be respectful of the father, what will the son do? Yes, dad, and they'll go do it. Now, I know that's a far fetch from reality, but that's what it's supposed to be. I mean... Some of you younger people may not remember this, but there was actually a show one time. Get ready for this. The name of the, the show was called Father Knows Best. 
Can you believe it? That would never be on TV today. You know, you got doofuses like the Simpsons and all this other stuff that take the fatherhood and they kind of just grind it down into the mud and, you know, the dads are basically, you know, diminished to this dumb idiot that walks around and mumbles to himself. I mean, it's, it's so sad. And yet, God has lifted up fatherhood and He wants to be your father. But the one thing He does, He wants you to obey. He wants you to obey. Can you treat your father with disrespect and disobedience? Well, you can. But there will probably be consequences. Even if your father doesn't give you consequences, there will be consequences. But our Heavenly Father, in the Jewish mindset, they understood them, Him as Creator. They understood them as a loving God, somebody who came alongside and was guiding them and was training them to help them obey the principles. And in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus kind of reiterates that whole thinking in the New Testament. In, in verse uh, 7, He says, Ask and it shall be given to you. Knock and you shall find... And it shall knock and it shall be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he that finds, and he that seeks finds, and to him that knocks it shall be open. Well, why is that? In verse 9, he goes on. Why is that when you're going to, you know, knock that God's going to open the door? When you're going to seek, he's going to help you find. Why does that happen? In verse 9, he says, Of what man is there among you if his son asks for bread, would you give him a stone? That would be pretty sad. That would be a pretty tough childhood. Hey, Dad, I'm hungry. You know, can I have a loaf of bread? Yeah, here's a rock. Boom, you know. I mean, can you imagine that? Or he asks of a fish and you give him a serpent. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like a trout today, Dad. Yeah, well, here's a snake. (laughs) And then he goes on. He says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts, how much more is your heavenly Father who is in heaven Give good things to them who ask. See, he's introducing the fact that God is caring, that he's loving, that he's a sustaining father. He's not some guy that's in heaven mad and angry at the world with a big hammer waiting for you to step out of line so he can squash you like a bug. That's not the kind of father that we have. And they had all sorts of different thoughts back then. What fathers were to be. And part of it came out of of their understanding of their gods and all that that kind of a mixed thing that they had in their head. And, you know, the one thing that's that's interesting is one group of folks, they they believe that basically God was kind of apathetic and he had no feelings and, and, and the other ones believed that he was so isolated from everybody because he didn't want to be emotionally attached to anybody. And so you can see where in Jesus' day, when they came to prayer to talk to God who was their father, they had a whole mix-up in their head. And Jesus wanted to set them straight. So he starts off this prayer with our Father who art in heaven. You know, Jesus always used that title when he addressed God, except one time. There's only one time in the Bible where Jesus did not address his father as 
Father. And that was when he was on the cross when he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's the only time that Jesus did not address his Father as Father. And it was because of the punishment that he was taking, the separation that was there because of the sin of the world placed upon his shoulders. At all other times, that intimacy was there in his life. And I think that that's what God wants from us. He wants a prayer life that's an intimate prayer life. You know, people don't understand prayer today. They think prayer is going to a church and lighting a candle and a bunch of beads in your hands and, you know, praying to some statue and kissing the feet, whatever, all those things. It's crazy. The Bible doesn't speak of those things. The Bible says that we have a personal relationship with a God through Jesus Christ and He wants us to cry out to Him. Time and time again. Well, what does it mean? Who cares about all this? <laughs> you know, what significance is this to us? Well, first of all, I think that when we understand our relationship with God, that He is our Father, I think, first of all, it means that there's an end of fear in our lives. You know, a lot of our lives are dominated with fear. And there's one thing a father does, a righteous, righteous father, is it kind of takes that, that fear away. You feel secure. Have you ever seen a little boy or a little girl that's lost in a mall? And they're just freaking out. They're scared and they're almost, you know, just, just going nuts. And finally you find the parents and you hook them up as soon as, as soon as you connect those two. It could be mother or father, whatever. But as soon as you bring that parent figure into, boy, everything just calms down. And the fear has gone away. You know, that's the hardest thing a lot of times when you're dealing with some chaplain situations where, you know, a father or a mother's got to be taken away by the police and you're dealing with the kids. And you're trying to dispel that fear, but there's not a whole lot you can do because their mom and daddy are taken away in the police car and, you know, you're waiting for the relatives to come or whatever it might be and you're trying to entertain them. But, man, the only thing they know is fear at that point. I don't know you and you're the only one I do know you're taken away in handcuffs. Secondly, it gives us hope that God is our Father. It gives us hope. See, back then, a lot of people didn't have hope. There was nothing for them to hope in. They were going through the religious things left and right and just kind of walking through the, the uh, you know, rituals and doing all that. And there was no hope. The hope was kind of sucked out of them. We serve a God of hope because He's a loving God. He cares for us. That's what He wants us to do. He wants us to be a hopeful people. You know, I think a lot of Christians need to be filled up with some hope. I mean, we walk around, whoa, it's me, you know, yeah. Oh, you know, what church do you go to? Oh, I go to the hopeless church, you know. It's just, man, put some joy in your life. I appreciate Hassan this morning, man. I thought, boy, what, did he have a couple of coffees this morning or what? But, you know, it was good. You know, got people going, and, and I think that that's important. When we come to the house of God, we should be excited. And, you know, it's, and we all have different personalities. I mean, I'm, I know I'm probably, you know, not the most excitable personality. So you're probably looking at me going, well, you should look at what you look like up there. But, I, you, know, that's, that's, you know, that's with that said, our hearts should be joyful. And we want to worship the Lord because of that hope that we have. And I think it, it's so important we focus on that. And also, you know what? People go through life lonely. Just bottom line, lonely. And, you know, I, I thank God all the time that I came to Christ when I did, at the time I did. 
Because you know what? That loneliness never really set in in my life. You know, there, was, there, there wasn't a point in my life where, you know, I was just, you know, unmarried and just lonely. I just found everything in that Christ filled me up in every aspect of my life. Not because I was some big spiritual giant. I mean, I had major issues. But I'm just saying that when I came to Christ, I found all those needs met through Him. And when that happened, when I was content in those circumstances, here I was, you know, 33 and and still not married and every visiting pastor to our church, hey, you know, I got a couple girls we hook you up with or whatever. Oh, you got to get married. Just constant drone of things. You know, you can't be single and be in ministry. All this stuff. And eventually, you know, I I didn't bow to that pressure. I just said, this this is where God has me. And I was content. Just out of the blue, one day, God said, marry this woman. (laughs) No. But, you know, it was almost... You know, I mean, but that's what it needed. I mean, to be a big revelation because I was content, happy doing what it, youth stuff and, you know, I didn't even really date. I was just kind of focused on ministry and I thought, boy, this is, I understand what Paul's saying. You know, if you're single, man, you can just give everything you have to ministry. If you're married, you got to worry about the cares of this world. But you know what? I'd, I'd never go back, ever. Especially, I'd say that because my wife's sitting here, but, you know, I, I would never, ever think of going back. Because you know what? When you're content in that situation, then God makes you even more content. Just amazing what God does. And He makes you whole too. Because my wife brings an aspect to our relationship that, that I definitely don't bring. And, uh, and, and I thank God for that every day. Fourth thing there is a matter of selfishness. It kind of limits our our selfishness when he doesn't say they're my father. See that? What's he say? He says our father. See, Jesus is teaching us here that our prayer life is not just about me. It's not about us all the time. Stop and if you have a prayer list at, at your home and you do a devotion in life and you get up in the morning and you have a prayer list, look at that prayer list. I challenge you, look at it. And count how many times you're listed and count how many times other people are listed. When you're praying, focus and say, okay, you know what, am I just praying about myself and me and my and all this stuff or, or am I considerate about other people? Am I considerate about the body of Christ? Because He doesn't want us to come to Him with a selfish attitude. He wants us to come to Him in prayer, kind of embracing the community of faith that we belong to. That's why there's no singular pronoun in this whole prayer. Not one. Ephesians 6.18 says, Pray always with all prayer and supplication. For who? For all the saints. Pray for everybody. I mean, you know if you just focus on yourself during your prayer life, you've missed the point. That's not what it's about. He's not your father. He's our father. Important point. Fifth thing there. See, God as father it settles the matter of resources. <laughs> because you look at where he's at. Our father uh, down on the back nine. No, our father, where's he at? In heaven. In heaven, the abundance of, re- of, of resources, rich, heaven's resources are at our disposal. 
And God wants us to understand that. And through His sovereign and divine will, He'll, He'll bless us in our lives as we cry out to Him in prayer. He's not drawing from the world to meet our needs. He's drawing from heaven. And that makes a big difference. Arthur Pink said this, If God is in heaven, then prayer needs to be a thing of the heart and not the lips. For no physical voice on earth can rend the skies. If God is in heaven, then our souls must be detached from the earth. If we pray to God in heaven, then faith must wing our petitions. That's so, so true. Sixthly there, he says, seeing God as Father settles the matter of obedience. We're called to obey God. The whole point of the fatherhood of of God comes down to the fact that, that basically we are to obey. Jesus said, obey the Father. He said, I didn't come to do my own will, right? He set an example for us. Not my will, but whose will? Your will be done. It's not about us. And I think the, the, the quicker we remember that, the more blessed we'll be in our prayer, prayer life. And then, last thing there is the matter of, of wisdom. God is far more <laughs> wise than we would ever dream of being. We need to cry out to Him as our Father and ask Him for wisdom. He'll give it to you. That's the amazing thing. God is just waiting. Come on, pray. Pray, communicate with me. I want to I I bless your socks off. But I want that relationship with you. I want that intimate relationship with you through Christ. You have to have that first. If you don't have that, you can pray all day long. Nothing's going to happen. There's only one prayer from an unbeliever God ever hears. is be merciful to me, a sinner. God, I need salvation. I repent of my sins. I want to turn to you. God will hear that prayer. And he'll answer it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I pray that you would give us a hunger for prayer. Not only in our own lives, but in our church. Lord, we thank You that because You're our Father, we're not just lost in a crowd of people. That it's a personal relationship. Every time we pray to You, Lord, we know that You're there. And Father, we thank You that You take away the fear and provide the hope and take away the the loneliness that some of us deal with sometimes. Doing away with our selfishness. Showing us the vast resources of heaven that are at our disposal. You desire for us to be obedient to you. And you're willing to give out your wisdom to lead us and guide us in our lives. Father, we thank you for that. Lord, you you didn't just make us subjects of your kingdom. You didn't just make us servants to your will. You didn't just call us friends. Lord, Your Word says You made us sons and daughters. Your children. And You prove that through this prayer when Jesus calls out to You, Our Father, who art in heaven. Father, we pray that our prayer lives with You would grow. Our hunger for the Word of God would grow. Lord, that we would become people of prayer. 
not just so we could look spiritual to other people, but, Father, that we would strengthen our communion with you. Lord, if there's any here today who's yet to cry out to you, Lord, to be merciful to me, a sinner, Father, I pray that you would tug at their heart, that you would show them that there's a better way to live, that there's a way that that is just so full of your blessings and And Lord, we can only have that through your grace, through the Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray that you would cause them to turn from their sin, to repent. Lord, it's the attitude of the heart that they would cry out to you, that you would save them, that you would extend your grace to them. And Lord, we thank you for that and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.